0: Welcome to the People Teaching People podcast. My name is Tiana Fesch. I'm a mom of three, an educator, a course development consultant, and a lifelong learner. Teaching and learning can take place anytime, anywhere, and in a multitude of ways. The range of knowledge and skills to teach and to learn about are truly limitless, but at the heart of all teaching and learning experiences are the people. The People Teaching People podcast is the place to talk about the who, what, when, where, why, and how of teaching and learning in a world where there is always more to discover. Education plays an important and integral role in all facets of our lives, how we work, do business, live, play, explore, and build relationships. Let's talk teaching and learning together. Welcome to the People Teaching People podcast. Joining me on the podcast is Madeline Shaw. Madeline Shaw, she, her, is a feminist entrepreneur and writer based on unceded Coast Salish territory, Vancouver, BC. She is best known as the co-founder of Isle, formerly Lunapads, one of the first groundbreaking ventures in the world to commercialize reusable menstrual products. In her first book, the greater good social entrepreneurship for everyday people who want to change the world, she offers encouraging tips and reflections for aspiring impact-based entrepreneurs. She is passionate about creatively deploying the tools of business in service of social change, drawing inspiration from natural growth patterns as ways to build regenerative organizations and neo-sobriety culture and discourse. Madeline is incredibly creative, compassionate, and curious. She truly embodies what it means to be a lifelong learner. You will be inspired by Madeline and her commitment to social entrepreneurship and her initiatives to truly support everyday people who want to change the world. Thank you so much for joining me today, Madeline.
1: I'm thrilled to be here, Tiana. Thank you so much.
0: So, where I would love to start with you today is to learn more about you and your story, and what led you to become the co-founder and director of Partnerships and Impact at Isle? Yeah, well,
1: I have been in some way, shape, or form with Isle, which was previously known as Lunapads, uh, for just over thirty years. So my title doesn't really matter. Like I've had many, I've been creative director and I've been lots of things. And um, But I do actually like that particular partnership and impact because, um, so I'll just back up a little bit is we specialize in reusable products for menstruation, including period underwear, menstrual cups, cloth pads. So basically anything that you can use for your period or bladder leaks that replaces a traditional disposable throwaway pad or tampon is what we do. And I've been doing that since the early 1990s. And the sort of the background to that is a really like, unfortunately, you've asked me a question that is like super long answer. But, um, basically I am an impact entrepreneur and I just love, and I'm also a feminist. And so the idea of being able to kind of combine my values around sustainability and feminism and being able to make a difference through entrepreneurship is, Results in being the, you know, director of partnership and impact at Isle. And so basically on a daily basis, what my job looks like is developing partnerships. Um, and that can include nonprofit, um, social impact agencies, government, um, post-secondary institutions. There's so much activity happening there right now um, schools, uh, corporations, that type of thing, who are interested in pursuing menstrual equity, which I know we'll get into, um, and also sustainability because of, of course, obviously, as everybody knows, we're in a climate emergency. And so, you know, increasingly these institutions, um, have climate goals. And so the work that I do enables them to kind of feed two birds with one seed.
0: So, Looking back, what was it that sort of gave you that nudge or took you in that direction to start a business?
1: Oh, there were so many. I mean, it really wasn't like like, so this, this notion of being a social entrepreneur is something that I talk about a lot. And, and so for me, I, you know, I've been a card carrying feminist activist since I was a teenager. And so becoming an entrepreneur or starting a business, um, in order to pursue that social change agenda, it just made sense because I created some products that I really liked. And, but honestly, like it, I could have been a filmmaker and made films about, you know, sustainability and feminism. I could have, I don't know, done a lot of other things with that, but becoming a for-profit entity um, to make and sell products was just sort of legally what made sense. Um, But also, I just really believe that those the kind of distinction that we have between for-profit and not-for-profit enterprise is something that really should be way more kind of combined and experimented with. I think it's too compartmentalized and very much to the detriment, like people we assume that, you know, a charitable entity or not-for-profit agency is how we must like, we must do that in order to create social change. And conversely, if we just want to sell something and make money, then we need to start a business. And in my estimation, neither of those things strictly speaking are true. And, and that kind of binary, mutually exclusive thought is actually um, stifles creativity. And so I'm a big believer in kind of mixing those two things up.
0: So you had mentioned in uh, your story, the term sustainable menstrual equity. So what is that? What did, what do you mean when you talk about that? And why is that something that matters so much today?
1: Yeah, um, okay, so to break it down a little bit. So menstrual equity, is a concept that was coined in 2015 by an American lawyer and um, activist called Jennifer Weiswolf. And so she basically put a name to something that I've personally been doing, you know, since the early 1990s, which was basically saying menstruation matters. And it matters not just for the people who experience periods and require support and whether that's products or privacy or medication or whatever, information education uh, about what that actually means I mean the menstrual cycle is a core feature of how we create human beings and um, and yet it's something that is deeply stigmatized and um, shamed and so it makes it hard to, to ask questions and go why is my body do, doing this what's going on and so we tend to portray periods as just kind of a mess to be cleaned up or a problem to be solved. Whereas in fact, they're just one part of a very complex, um, very beautiful, fascinating cycle, um, that occurs in, you know, roughly half the population for, you know, 30, 40 years of their lives. And which is to say a lot. And. So menstrual equity means that we, we value that. We, we go that, that should be supported. So on a very material level, it looks like things like if you go to a public bathroom, then there being the provision of free pads and tampons. And in much the same way, like from a mindset perspective, it's like when you go to a bathroom, you expect there will be toilet paper, there will be soap, there will be hand towels, whatever you need to take care of your personal hygiene as a matter of basic human dignity. And so menstrual equity is like, and for the people who need menstrual products, then those things should be on that list too. Um, but it's also an attitude and it also yeah, pertains to education. It pertains to destigmatization. And so sustainable menstrual equity, which is kind of the the slice of it that I'm into, um, sustainability, meaning, meaning kind of long-term viability. Like when we give someone, um, a a disposal pad or tampon in a bathroom and they're on their way to a, you know, a business meeting or they're on their way to an exam or something like that. We've solved their problem for three or four hours and then they've got to go find another one. And, you know, these products are not universally available. So really you're making a pretty big leap to begin with going, well, they're going to be able to find something in the first place. Um, so, we want to solve this menstrual equity situation permanently. You know it's not just a two hour or three hour thing before someone forcing someone to go and find another bathroom that may or may not stock products that meet their needs and so on. Um, the thing about those products is they're all going in landfills, so disposable pads and tampons um, take roughly five hundred years apiece to biodegrade. Uh, disposable menstrual pads are made of up to ninety percent plastic. You know, just it, it it may seem like a small thing at, at the time, but really, given the number of people who menstruate, it adds up. So there's that aspect of sustainability as well of not just the the permanence, like seeking a permanent universal solution, but also um, considering the environment.
0: Well, thank you for that explanation and. It's interesting. I, as you're talking and just sort of how there can be at times sort of this discomfort around this conversation for people. I relatively recently had a situation um, at a local public pool that I swim at where I had a situation arise and there was nothing in the bathroom to deal with the emergency. And so I ended up just having to leave and not being able to swim, which wasn't a big deal. But when I came back the next day to engage in a conversation about the situation. Just explain, you know, I paid to swim last time, but I wasn't able to. That conversation was one of the most like negative, uncomfortable conversations I've ever had. I felt ashamed for having brought it up. And so the fact that, um, you know, I'm 44 years old and, Uh, having, engaging in these conversations can feel very uncomfortable. I think about young people making decisions about something that is very much a natural part of their body and wanting to think about things like sustainability and accessibility and asking a lot of good questions about that. It's That moment really made me realize how surprising it is, how difficult and uncomfortable and challenging those conversations still are. I don't think I realized how far we still have to go. That's a perfect
1: example and thank you so much for sharing it. Like the fact that there was no provision made for you to deal with your period and therefore were unable to access a public service that you had paid for for that supports your well-being as a human being. So, you know, it's the same if somebody has to miss a work meeting or a student has to miss a class or like anything like these things have very real material consequences. And if you times like if you think about what it means for somebody who's on a really low income, like 40 percent of post-secondary students in Canada right now are accessing food pantries. Okay, so if they are having trouble affording food, for sure, they're having trouble affording menstrual products. And that is directly abil- affecting their ability to attend class, to pursue their education, to pursue their career. Like, like they're very. It's not just isol- like like yep yeah, isolated examples, but add it up, and it makes a huge difference. And this is why actually some people even call menstrual equity menstrual justice, um, to just kind of dial that up a little bit. And um, I really believe that this is one of the more defining issues of our time. Um, in Canada right now, there are um, the federal government is paying attention, then BC, the provincial government's paying attention, there are funds being invested into ensuring that marginalized Canadians who menstruate are able to fully live their lives and access these products because it's not as obvious as many people would think. And um, so thank you so much for sharing that. And also the vulnerability of that, right? Like going and having somebody kind of maybe not take you seriously, or maybe, well, why didn't you bring your own tampons lady or whatever it was that you had coming your way that made you feel ashamed as a grown up 44 year old woman, you know, who's a parent and a professional and whatever. And it's like, are you kidding me? Like somebody is going to kind of give you the gears as another human being for your body doing something you know that is doing exactly what it's supposed to be doing like oh my gosh I'm so sorry that happened to you
0: well and yes and I did follow up like after that conversation because my concern was not so much myself but it was thinking about other people yeah what if you're 11 Exactly. What if you're 11 years old? Like it's, it was a an awkward moment for me as an adult, but for a young person who maybe their period is not as regular or predictable, or they haven't had it yet, and it happens all of a sudden. So where's the kindness, the respect, the support um, to make sure that they're feeling heard and taken care of and and supported? It was really mind blowing um, to me, and uh, I so appreciate you, you know, speaking about things in this bigger scale perspective. And you're absolutely right. You know, so many people in our communities are struggling right now with the increased cost of everything. And um, this is a need. It's not a want, it's a need. It allows us to participate fully in, in all the things that we need to do and want to do.
1: Yeah, exactly. And have the right to do. And, and that's sort of brings us to the like the why, why does this matter now? And it's because never in, as far as I know, history has this this been as normalized, like for, for all that it's, it's still rough and we're still not there yet. Like, you know, the BC government has legislation in place that says, Hey, you know, public schools need to provide these products for students. We've got um, places, countries like Scotland um, coming out and declaring that, you know, menstrual products need to be available for free for all of their citizens. Um, so there's uh, like, this is a very timely issue that intersects beautifully with the climate uh, emergency that we're in as well. So um, we're seeing very real change. Like right now, universities in Canada are providing reusable menstrual products to their students for free, which is one of the most exciting things that I've ever in my 30 years of doing this is one of the most important, amazing things because it sends the signal from the university administration, like, hey, students who menstruate, we care about you. We wanna make sure that you're able to fully enjoy, whether it's attending class or extracurricular clubs or whatever, like show up and be here with us now because you matter. And furthermore, to do it sustainably with using reusable products. I mean, of course, disposable products need to be available for last minute, you know, whatever in bathroom solutions, but um, by using re- reusable, sustainable products, which is what the students want for the most part, um, it gives them, it sort of solves the problem permanently and sustainably. So there's that.
0: Yeah. And you've, you've kind of alluded to it, but um, I'm curious to have you expand a little bit more on the role of education in the success of sustainable menstrual equity.
1: Yeah. Sustainable, or sorry, um, education is huge in this space for a bunch of reasons. So for starters, because as I did allude to earlier, not everybody understands menstrual cycles. Like it's not necessarily that something like it's something that's sort of fraught with shame. So it makes it hard to ask questions. Um, The education around it is often very kind of abstract. Like you'll just see sort of a diagram of the, you know, the uterus and the fallopian tubes and whatever. And it's not actually, it's like, where is this in my body? Um, And what, what does this mean? And um, so that's not always delivered in sort of a clear, um inclusive way. I mean, we're starting to understand that um menstruation doesn't just happen to girls and women, that it's there's far broader spectrum of people gender-wise who menstruate. And so you know, educating people about that is huge. Uh educating people about the environmental impacts of menstrual menstrual products is huge. Um And then about, as we were just discussing, this menstrual equity. So there's a very political aspect to this, as well as sort of biological and material. So there's so so many things about it. And that's part of what makes it an exciting, interesting opportunity. Because most people either know someone, either do menstruate or know someone who does. Like It would be practically impossible not to, right? So that makes it kind of a universally important issue for people to come together and discuss and do a bunch of healing around because, you know, that stigma, as you just shared, it's persistent, and especially for youth. And so the better educated we are, the, the less shame there is around it, the more the conversation around menstruation and periods, menstrual cycles is normalized, um, the less of a big, scary, freaky
0: deal it is. Exactly. The more you know, right? The more yeah. you know, Now, with your story, you also shared about how you really embraced stepping into the role of social entrepreneur Um, and uh, in your own own experience with social entrepreneurship and being a part of that, um, I know you were also inspired to write a book about it. So what really led to you writing um, a book about being a social entrepreneur? Oh,
1: thanks. I love that question. And yeah, so for folks who are new to the concept of social entrepreneurship, um, it's really important. You know, they've probably heard of entrepreneurs and they know that they're people who start ventures. Um, but putting the social part first is really important and qualifying it that way. And basically, it's just shorthand for social or environmental impact. Um, but it's significant because it basically tells you the why behind somebody's, you know, there, this isn't somebody who's just graduated from MBA school and seen a market opportunity to make a bunch of money. Um, social entrepreneurs are very different. They're mostly people who have not gone to business school, who um, have pursued something that they learned about in their own lives or someone very something that happened very close to them. Uh, and so they're devising a solution to address a problem that they see uh, that basically can make the world a better place can make the planet a cleaner place and so in my case um what that looked like was having some problems um with disposal pads and tampons in my sort of mid-20s i was having allergic reactions to them and sort of combining that with my feminist consciousness and my just creativity because that's something um about me as well i'm a very creative person so i started making reusable um, pads and underwear and that inspired me to start a venture selling those so it's a perfect example because it's like okay this really important thing happened in my life and how and so it made me want to share it with other people and in order to share it with other people i started a company and started making more of them to sell that enabled me to sell more and make more and so on so um And what I noticed in my over 30 years now as a social entrepreneur is that I wasn't alone. Like there are actually a lot of people, like even though there's this kind of funny duality out there of a very persistent stereotype of like the tech entrepreneur and they're raising money and they're going after venture capital and they're scaling and they're, you know, disrupting things and whatever. And down in Silicon Valley and okay, that's great. But what I saw in my life is people who whose ambition was not to scale, whose ambition was to make a difference and choosing, you know structures and tools and building relationships and community and financial structures to make that social and environmental impact possible and so the priorities are are very different between mainstream entrepreneurship and social entrepreneurship and i decided to write a book about it and the book is called the greater good Uh, Social Entrepreneurship for Everyday People Who Want to Change the World, which is, I guess, a short explanation of who social entrepreneurs are. I decided to write the book because um, I've done a lot of public speaking and a lot of um, just interviews, kind of like this. And I find, I just wanted for it to all be in one place once and for all of like all the stories, all the things that happened, because now at this point, I'm talking about a 30-year career. So it just can't, it's not a nice and tidy 20-minute, you know, podcast or something. Like there's no way And, um, and also because I love telling stories. Like I wanted to tell the stories, not just of what I had created, but I wanted to, to show examples of these so-called everyday people who were people of just extremely diverse backgrounds, um, who became inspired to step outside of who they thought they were. So they thought they were, you know, a scientist or a parent or, you know, an educator or an artist or whatever, but they, then they had this idea and they're like, Oh, I gotta, I want to do this thing. So I need to become an entrepreneur An entrepreneur by definition is somebody who instigates something is somebody, is somebody who creates something that was not there before. And it has nothing to do with whether it's for profit or it's nonprofit or whatever. It's a form of leadership and creativity. So social entrepreneurs often, in fact, they always have a personal story behind what their venture is and why they created it. And, and that's what they're looking for. And that's kind of their why, and that drives their mission and their vision for what they're creating. And so the book is kind of a manual. Um, And you and I will get into this because it's become so much more than just a book Um, uh, to help people. Yeah. Not only understand what social entrepreneurship is, but to help them find like almost help them transition from, the story they have about themselves now um, and the story that they are creating about themselves and need to create as they think about like, oh, I have this idea and I wanna do this thing, which is why they pick up the book. So this notion of personal transformation is extremely important in this as well. It's not just a like here are 10 steps to creating a social enterprise. Like, yes, that's in the book, but really it's about this journey of transformation and leadership and accessing vision.
0: Well, in your book, I love how you incorporate storytelling and how you share the stories of other social entrepreneurs and their journeys and the ways that they're making a difference in the world. So who would be maybe one or two of the social entrepreneurs that you admire in particular? I know there's many. Um, and what, are the, what is the work that they're doing?
1: Yeah, so I'll, I'll sort of choose a big name that a lot of people have probably heard of. That's Yvonne Chouinard of Patagonia. And so I I talked about him in the book and that was even before, um, he elected to, you know, sell or transfer all of his family's shares in this privately held billion dollar business. Um, to a couple of trusts that basically support environmental issues. So I hope most people listening are aware of the brand Patagonia. It's a outdoor apparel um, and, you know, just basically anything that you could need to enjoy the wilderness, which is why Yvonne Chouinard, the founder, um, started the company. And so as a social entrepreneur, his motivation was just basically to create tools to allow people to, And learn about and enjoy nature. So he was a rock climber. He wasn't a business person. And, um, but bit by bit, the brand grew and grew and grew, um, and is, you know, now today, billion dollar international company. And last year he decided, to rather than selling his company, which is what most people like, again, this traditional entrepreneurial trajectory is that it's very desirable. Like you want to exit, you want to sell your company for as much as possible and, you know, have tons of money and go and live your life. And in Chouinard's case, like he totally could have done that. Like I, I shudder to think he, how much he could have sold his company to Nike for, or something like that. Like just huge, um, But instead, he elected to make this very, very radical move of instead, you know, he basically said, I have enough money, my family has enough money, like, I don't need billions of dollars, nobody does. Um, But we have a planet that needs saving. And so deploying that money that was so available to him, just, oh, my gosh, and then turning it into something else to, um, to solve, you know, climate and environmental issues. So personally, um, super duper admire that. The um, To bring it kind of more down to earth, I have a really close friend here in Vancouver. Um, and she, her name is Patrice Mousseau. And she's an Anishinaabe um, woman from Northern Ontario and uh, grew up on a reserve there. And, you know, as an Indigenous woman in Canada has obviously faced extreme prejudice and bias and just in her life and overcome addiction. And she's a single mom, like just so many things that you think, you know, are classically stacked against indigenous women in Canada. She's absolutely faced all of those things. And anyways, she, uh, she created, um, she had a baby daughter and who had eczema that was so bad that her daughter was literally scratching herself. So she was bleeding all over her sheets in her crib, took her to the doctor. The doctor prescribed steroids, uh, steroid cream. And my friend was just like, Patrice was like, I don't, you know, she's a journalist by trade. So here's another great example. Here we go. Journalist, right? To entrepreneur, no business school training. And she just thought I can do better than this and looked online and found natural ingredients and created this product in her crock pot, like classic, like just do it yourself. Like nobody gave her permission. Nobody said, you know what I mean? Nobody, she didn't go to school for any of this, Um, but had the research skills and just was also just not satisfied with kind of the status quo and created a product that is now called Satya that's available at like a thousand stores across Canada and um, used it to successfully treat her daughter. And now the product has helped, thousands and thousands of people um, across Canada and the United States. So yeah, she, and that's at satya.ca S a t y a.
0: I will make sure to share that in the show notes. And I look forward to having a look myself. What an incredible story. And I can just see, you know, I think it's so inspiring to think about her with her crock pot, creating something to help her child and then having it be so impactful for, the, for others who are also struggling with the same thing. Those are both fantastic stories. Thank you so much for sharing them. Now, I had the immense privilege to work with you in creating a curricular toolkit that aligns beautifully with your book. Um, what led you to want to create this teaching and learning resource, and what was that experience for you like in developing it?
1: Yeah, I love that question and I loved working with you. And what I guess what it raises for me right off the hop, and I know this isn't directly answering your question, but one of the things that I strongly recommend to people is that like get super clear on the things that you're good at and the things that you're not good at and get help. Like just, I know sometimes we think we need to do everything ourselves and we need to figure it out and and that's a very entrepreneurial kind of trait, but I'm actually not a big believer in it. Like I like, yes, get into, you know, figure it out in your crock pot for sure, but you don't necessarily need to figure out, you know, um, like so many other things, how to build a website or how to, you know, make your book into a curriculum in our case. And so, I mean, I just... Um, I had demand from a bunch of different people. Like I've, I know a lot of people in kind of the academic space. And now that social entrepreneurship is becoming recognized as something that people are wanting to teach at universities, in incubators, in um, different types of post-secondary or even secondary school. And there are not a lot of books about it. And some of them are very abstract. Um, or academic. And so people really liked that mine, The Greater Good is very much rooted in, as you said, the storytelling, like, and these examples that, you know, I've lived through and done and created. So it was that, but you know what? Honestly, Tiana, it's involved into so much more than doing that. And it's, I, anyways, I'll, it's becoming kind of this workbook vision. So what you so thoughtfully crafted in the curriculum I realized that I wanted people like in the same way that when you're reading a really good book, you want to write in the margins. So I thought I I need to make space for this in order for individuals to be able to use it kind of as a companion with the book. And so that's what it's become through the design process. And I'm so proud of it and so excited about it. We're just the finishing touches are happening now. Um, but I would say also just this notion of expansion and growth of how I saw myself in the process, like just even me becoming a writer was a very big deal. Like going, Oh, before my story about myself was I'm an entrepreneur and I sell, you know, period underwear and whatever. But then going, Oh, I'm a, now I'm a writer. And so that was a really important transformation. And, um, yeah. So I, I would say it was just to make it more accessible. Um, and to make yeah, just make the the experience of the book kind of richer and to be able to allow people to engage um, with it with like all the, the incredible resources that you harvested and organized. And like, there's so much great material there and I hadn't um, kind of gathered it in that format myself, but you did. And I'm so, so grateful.
0: Well, and I can't wait to see the final product. <laughs> I'm so excited for that. I can't wait. So congratulations on on, you know, adding this additional wonderful piece to your book and uh, providing another way for people to engage and learn and be inspired to uh, explore social entrepreneurship for themselves as well. Now, I have a question for you, and this is one of my favorite questions to ask. Um, I'm wondering if you have a favorite teacher or learning experience that you have had, and then why would this person or experience stand out for you?
1: Yeah, so the first person I thought of when I saw that question, and I love that question, um, is a good friend of mine in Vancouver and who I also write about in the book. Her name is Vanessa Richards and she is a community engagement specialist and but she the form of education that she participates in and i've seen her lead groups of like hundreds of people literally she's best known as a musician um, but music is just one of the tools that she deploys to offer an extremely embodied experiential form of education and almost helping people. Like it isn't just going, okay, I'm going to teach you about this thing. It's like, I'm going to show you the power of what's inside you and the power of what's in this room with the people that you're sharing this experience with. And anyways, I've seen her, I ran an event series called G day that I discuss in the book, um, quite a bit, um, which was a national event series for adolescent girls and their supporters. And Vanessa um, generously joined us as kind of an MC for the day, guiding us through um, this beautiful, like, day-long rite of passage where people are learning, like the, the girls and their parents um, are learning about relationship, are learning about finding their voices, are learning about the power of community. Um, and we're doing that through storytelling and movement and dance and conversation. And, um, and Vanessa did that many, many times. And just her sense of appreciation and honesty and curiosity were so powerful. And it, it's just, it's a form of love, honestly. Like this isn't even just like, oh, now I know this new thing. It was like, I have had an experience. So that would be like, she's hands down. Um, it's It's just such a full spectrum of of learning that you really feel emotionally, um, not just you know, in your head,
0: yeah. that emotional piece is often so key in having it be those positive, memorable learning experiences or those teachers that really have. Uh, that impact on it. She sounds like a phenomenal teacher.
1: She's amazing. And yeah, no, I believe there's actually even like that idea of creation of emotional memory uh, in adolescence, like it's actually a very good way for them to learn that, uh, you know, beyond the statistics and beyond the history and beyond all those things, if if they can actually associate a positive emotional state with the the information that is being conveyed to them, they actually, like, that's how they
0: remember it. Yeah, a hundred percent. It's all about the relationships and that connection and the feelings. It's so much more than the content itself. Absolutely. Now, when you look back at your journey so far, which has been an incredible one, what would be something that you're the most proud of?
1: Well, it, it's interesting. The first thing I thought of too uh, with that is what we were just speaking to. Like it's the quality of relationships that I have co-created with other people. So, you know, I do not see business as transactional. Like, yes, it—it it, there are parts of it that need to be transactional, but that's within a container of relationship. And so if you can build that container based on mutual respect and trust and, just seeing someone as a human being and not just as their title or, you know, what they, what they can do for you or whatever, like it, it just changes everything. And um, I believe that not only does it make it a kind of a richer experience in terms of just how it feels to, to do the, do your work, do your job um, every day, but I believe it produces better results. Like if somebody is, is, Invested in the vision that you have, if they can find themselves in it, if they believe in it with you, um, then you're going to get the benefit, not just of whatever the thing that, you know, maybe they're your bank account manager. I don't know. But if, it, if it matters to them, they, they will share your story and they will tell other people about it and like never underestimate the value of of doing that, of sharing that. And because it it literally changes everything and it motivates people to support you. It makes people proud to be part of what you're creating. It like so much about it. And so I really do believe, yeah, so much of what we do as social entrepreneurs comes down to how well we are able to create and in a very authentic way, quality relationship with other people. I couldn't agree more
0: in the field of teaching in general. yeah, I just it's, yeah, it's my philosophy. It's how I approach teaching and learning. and um I it's always relationships first. When I'm working with new student teachers or um now I'm working at a post-secondary institution uh, here in Calgary again, it's so much about relationships. and, I find new teachers especially get so caught up in having the perfect lesson and covering all the content and getting through their slides. But I always try and remind them to look out in front of them and see the people sitting there and how are you gonna get to know them and connect with them and know them as people beyond the subject matter that you're teaching and how are you gonna make this learning experience really mean something to them beyond the time they're with you in your classroom, like maybe even years to come. Um my favorite teacher was my grade 2 teacher. That was a really long time ago. <laughs> but oh, she left house. such an impact.
1: Yes, it did and I I think you know teachers are uniquely positioned in this relationship space and I don't know if they always know how impactful they are and that 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 you know that grade 2 teacher literally changed your life like look what you do for a living and um yeah no I just I love that and Um, yeah, I'm just a huge, huge, and like, really, we're just having a life experience together. It isn't even necessarily what we, what our goals are, what we create or, you know, whatever. It's like, it's the quality of what it feels like to be doing this thing
0: together. Exactly. Exactly. Now I have a few rapid fire questions for you. Mm -hmm. What is something that you would love to learn about or something that you would love to learn to do?
1: Yeah. Um, So I, I love gardening. It's my favorite hobby. Um, But I don't actually know that much about the science of how plants grow. So botany, in other words, and so I'd love to really get it like I go into my garden, and I, you know, I feel the soil and I plant seeds, and I, you know, whatever all the things and I I'm super into it. But it's like, I don't really know what's going on. And like, yes, I know photosynthesis and whatever, but I don't, I don't really get the whole, like from an environmental perspective almost. So, uh, and just the way plants grow, I think is a really interesting metaphor. Um, like I'm a big fan of uh, Dr. Suzanne Simard. Um, she's a UBC teacher and wrote the book, Finding the Mother Tree. And just in her work as a forest ecologist, like understanding how trees actually communicate and share things with one another is extremely, to me, inspiring, right? So how can we use those models of growth as inspirational, as entrepreneurs or as people founding organizations, and even just as communities? Like if you take trees or plants as metaphors for people, um, we're deeply connected with one another. We have to be, but we perceive one another as being separate and so anyways those are the kinds of uh, in biomimicry as well
0: that sounds fascinating a big area with lots of interesting things to learn about but also very practical yeah what is a place that is at the top of your travel bucket list
1: okay well i love traveling and i've had the good fortune to do a lot of traveling in my life and for me it's like just the experience of going somewhere that I have not been before that like I'll go anywhere, honestly. Like I'm, I'm kind of into it. And, um, but that said, like, if, if you're like, okay, you know, I'm going to give you an airline ticket and whatever to go anywhere. I kind of want to go to Japan and see the, the cherry blossoms there and the temples. And I'd like to go to Kyoto and I've never been there.
0: What is a book, podcast, movie, or TV show that oh. you've enjoyed recently?
1: So unfortunately over family day weekend, last weekend, I came down with my second bout of COVID, oh, which no. was a bummer. And I was complaining to a friend and, and I was like, oh, I'm going to have to spend all weekend in bed. And she's like, you have to watch this TV show on CBC gem called sort of. Okay. And I was like, okay. Anyways, it is the best tv show i've seen in years it's beautiful and it's essentially the story of a nine non-binary young probably 20 something individual in toronto their circle of friends what they're doing with their life you know their relationship with this family they work for their relationship with their parents like there's just it's just this amazing kind of it's a comedy but it's also a drama and it's just so thoughtfully and engagingly done. Like I just, like I found with TV a lot lately, I, I don't like the characters necessarily in a lot of the TV shows or I don't feel sympathy towards them. Or I just kind of like, don't relate to them. But this show, um, I just kind of fell for everybody, all the characters in the show and and just their very human struggles and what's going on. And it's funny and it's set in Toronto. and. I just, I literally binge watched it. So yeah, sort of on CBC jam and, and like this metaphor in a way of this idea of being in transition, um, between, you know, for some people that's a gender thing, for other people, that's, you know, moving from one country to another, for another person that's different life stages or adjusting to hard things happening in life and just realizing like we are all in transition. Life is transition. And the more kind of lightly and compassionately we can hold that and knowing that that's true for everybody, um, the better. So I, w- I was, I cannot say enough good things about it.
0: I will have to check that out. I've not heard of it. So I guess that was the positive that came out of the unfortunate COVID situation. Yes. Yeah. As I got to lie <laughs> in
1: bed and watch this amazing show that made me laugh and made me cry, and I just loved it. <laughs>
0: Uh, and my last question, rapid fire question, is if you could sit down and have a conversation with someone that you would love to learn from, who would it be and why?
1: Oh, my goodness. So the person I have learned the most from in the last, I'm going to say about five years, is a woman called Holly Whitaker. And she's an American writer. She is the author of a book called Quit Like a Woman, The Radical Choice to Not Drink in a Culture Sub- Obsessed with Alcohol and she is also she just she's an essayist and you know she's a podcaster and she does a lot of things um and anyway she's just basically kind of turned the field of addiction sobriety alcohol recovery like just the whole space like really brought a strongly feminist perspective to it and just the questioning of like we we've come to believe certain things about all of those ideas what is an alcoholic what does that even mean you know is what how do we help people who suffer from alcohol use disorder and so on and anyways i it really helped me as someone who struggled with what's now called gray area drinking which is to say like i felt like it was a problem but nobody else did and you know like my you know wine o'clock kind of thing and um and just understanding, like giving a vocabulary to that and helping me understand that actually I, I needed to do things like I was in an unhealthy relationship with alcohol and help me overcome the feelings of shame I had about that so that I could get help and, you know, just change it and then tell my story. And And similarly to the menstruation thing, like just normalize it. It's like this is something that happens to a lot of people. It's ubiquitous in our society. But when we're not able to have a kind of an honest, frank, kind conversation about what's actually happening for us, then it makes it really hard to to change things. And so I'm so grateful to her. And so great. So I would just love to like be able to say thank you to her, basically. But we'd get into way more than that, because we have a lot in common. But I just, yeah, very exciting person.
0: That sounds like a very interesting person to connect with. And it's it's always nice when there's sort of that personal journey that connects with the, the people that we admire, um, maybe one day you will get to sit down and have that conversation.
1: Oh, I hope so. Yeah, that would be so amazing. And she's just very enigmatic as well. And um, she's a very kind of complex um, person. And she sort of reminds me in a way of the sort of show. It's like she's, you know, she's sort of messy and, sort of intelligent and sort of, you know, all over the place. But, um, somebody who is not afraid to be who they are, I think is, is the main takeaway there. And that we're, you know, she's not going, Oh, I have to fit into this box or I have to fit in this box. Cause those are the only two boxes. She's like, I don't need, I'm going to blow up those boxes and make my own.
0: That is a powerful message right there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I'm just wondering, as we wrap up our uh, up our conversation, if you have any final thoughts or words of wisdom that could empower or support people with their own teaching and learning journeys. Yeah, um, I guess
1: the thing that really draws me to just the idea of learning and education is uh, is curiosity, and just that feeling like that, that open ended, pure like the joy of learning in a way that is just expansive and I, I feel sometimes like we can get very caught up in, you know, these are the learning outcomes and these are the goals and this is the test I have to write. And, you know, um, I have a daughter who's in grade 12 in high school now and, you know, there, you have to assess these things like there needs to be formulae and, and ways of doing things. And I understand that, but for me, like even the conversation that we had earlier about like the value of emotion and how we feel in a learning experience and how that changes it. Right. Um, is really, really important to me. And so I tend to, when I think about learning and education, I think about intuition and emotion and curiosity and just alternative experiential ways of learning that, um, are kind of non-traditional and I've loved, uh, there's a book I can recommend called Emergent Strategies by an American writer and activist called Adrienne Marie Brown. And she approaches learning from a very, like, just very radical, um, perspective that, um, is sort of the opposite of a structured regimented way that we can think of, um, of learning. And I know for myself, I'm an extremely right-brained person and, that I don't always respond well to, I don't know, lists and tests and whatever. I'm always like, what else? Like, where's the pleasure in this? What else, or what is another way of looking at this? And or being creative with it. So yeah, curiosity um, is the place that I would point to and um, as just almost like a North star, like is, does this embrace the spirit of curiosity? as opposed to getting the right answer.
0: I love that so much. My, I try every year not to create a New Year's resolution, but I pick a word for the year um, just to kind of set some intention for myself, just have it in the back of my mind as I'm making decisions and choosing to go left or right or sort of trying to decide what my priorities are. And my word for this year is curious. Awesome. Yay. <laughs> yeah, and I'm quite ex- yeah, I love it so much. And Madeline, I want to sh- thank you so much for sharing your time and your story and your words of wisdom with us today. And if our listeners want to learn more about you and all the things that you're up to, where are the best places to find you?
1: Oh my goodness. There are, well, there's a few of them now. So if folks are curious about um, sustainable menstrual products, they can head over to periodisle.com or .ca and they can go to my website at madelineshaw.ca. They can follow, I'm in social, um, Greater Good is probably, um, or Greater Good Book on Instagram is a good place to look. I personally, the best place for people to find me is actually on LinkedIn. I don't use Twitter and I, I don't know. I, social media is kind of a, it's not It's not my best um, place to shine. Um, I have a wonderful medium um, where I publish my essays and that's Madeline Shaw, Greater Good on Medium. And that's where I publish my essays about sobriety and recovery. And um, I do some anti-racism work there as well and talk about that. And Yeah, I think people should be able to track me down one way or the other. And I just love to hear from people and um, yeah, learn about what they're up to.
0: Thank you, I'll make sure to share all those different options in the show notes. And I wanna thank you so much for joining me, Madeline. It was so lovely to reconnect with you today and to, uh, as always, learn from you.
1: Likewise, Tana, and yeah, a total pleasure. And I've learned a lot from you as well.
0: Thank you for listening to the People Teaching People podcast. I'm your host, Tiana Fesch. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook at Tiana Fesch and on my website, tianafesh.com. I would love it if you would subscribe to, rate, and review this podcast. Your feedback and support are so appreciated. See you next time where we will continue to explore all things teaching and learning together.